Hey, hey, it's Conrad, and you're listening to Grilling JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross, heavy on the Mr. Jim. How are you, man? I'm good, man. I'm good. Feeling good. Happy to be on the air. I want to thank all the folks for tuning in, checking out our podcast and all Conrad's podcasts, but uh, we appreciate you joining us every Thursday and uh, appreciate all the good feedback on our show. Appreciate the, the folks uh, checking out ad-free shows as well, which is uh, which a great idea you had because it's, uh, it's hit, it, it hit and people like it. They get a lot of extra content, new content. And, uh, I'm, uh, even the little, the stuff that Tony and I do in our, on our, uh, our little ride alongs as it were <clears throat> have been, have been, uh, well received. So our work is being recognized. Can't tell you guys how much we appreciate your support and tell a friend about our show and, uh, and tune in. I saw something where we got nice here, here a while back. We got recognized by a podcast magazine. Yeah, absolutely. Podcast magazine shouted us out as, uh, being one of the podcasts to watch and one of the best podcasts around. So we appreciate everybody tuning in and recognizing us and supporting us in ways like that. And you made mention of adfreeshows.com. I think people are digging on the road again. I keep getting great feedback. We've been dropping those episodes right after dynamite on Wednesday over at adfree shows. And the third episode last week was, uh, was a big hit. Yes. Yeah, Tony and I have fun with those and. It's, it's very, uh, if you guys haven't listened to it or haven't checked it out, it's just two guys that have been friends for 30 years, making road trips and talking about whatever the hell comes in our mind. And, uh, you know, we get off these little tangents and we always end up laughing about something. So it's a, uh, it's a real cathartic for me. And I think for Tony as well, the Tony, the road warrior, he likes to drive. So that really works well for me because I don't like to drive. So. That's how that situation is, uh, is so it's fun. It's a fun deal. And it's good that to, in this day and age with all this turmoil in our country that, uh, you know, two guys that have been buddies forever can get together and just talk about family and, you know, book, rebook the territory as it were. And all those type things that we talk about in the, in the rational business. So it's a fun, if you hadn't checked it out, folks, you might, it's, 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 a, it's not a long watch. Uh, you know, they're, they're short, but they're. Uh, how short are they, Conrad? You know, 15 yeah. minutes. Or yeah. 10, 15, 20 minutes. The, the idea yeah. though is it's uh sort of wrestling's equivalent of grumpy old man. It's great, man. I really enjoy the opportunity to ride around with you guys. And I've never been in the car with both of you, but I feel like I have now. And for years and years we heard, well, business is done in the bar, but you hone your craft in the car. And so <laughs> ma- making towns and, and, and doing all that, that's kind of the, cliche in wrestling and here it's happening every week at adfreeshows.com with Tony Schiavone and Jim Ross. Check it out. And we're excited today because, well, I'm excited. We're talking about one of my favorite wrestlers as a kid, but then, uh, well, you grow up and you learn some more about some folks. And of course today is no different. It's the ultimate warrior, Jim Helwig born in June 16th, 1959. That's the reason we're covering him. He just celebrated a birthday. He's uh, about 50 miles outside of Indianapolis and very early on decides he wants to get into bodybuilding and becomes an amateur bodybuilder. And fast forward when he's on the West coast, he, uh, meets a fellow named Rick Bassman. And before you know it, he, uh, is headed down the path of becoming a professional wrestler. Rick Bassman is a name that has been synonymous with a lot of big stars over the years. What can you tell us about Rick, Jim? Uh, entrepreneur, a big time entrepreneur, uh, uh, 
he was, uh, he had a wrestling school out there, had a little promotion, uh, in the Southern California and a lot of stars are congregating in Southern California. They may not be as congregated right now as they, as they once were in that respect, but nonetheless, Rick was an entrepreneur. He was a promoter, uh, you know, always looking for the next gig, a hustler, uh, but a very, uh, forward thinking guy. And, uh, he kept in contact with us at WWE back in my talent relations days, always with an idea with a, for a talent. I got this guy, I got that guy. So that's where, uh, I, that's where I, inter- I was introduced to John Cena because Rick Bassman, in addition to all the guys like Sting and an ultimate warrior that he was affiliated with. He also had uh, among others, uh, John Cena. That was my biggest get out of his camp was, uh, going out there and scouting John Cena, meeting him, talking with him, getting to know him and then signing him. You know, I tell the story before that I took a red eye back from LAX to New York city and I went straight to the office. I was, I was probably looked a little disheveled because I was flown all night and, uh, Vince, I told Vince that I just, I think I just signed a, our main eventer for WrestleMania in about five years. I'd like to go back and do my research and see how long it would actually was. But Vince thought I was, uh, sleep deprived. He said, you need to go home and shower <laughs> and, 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 uh, and come back to work or something like that. And so in other words, uh, he, he didn't celebrate my signing as uh, fervently as I did until he met John. And then he was all in. He, he saw what we, what I saw. You know, a smart guy that I love the business, but a real student of the game, not a bullshit student of the game where you just memorize somebody's Wikipedia page. He understood the business and respected the business. So he came out of the Bassman camp. Uh, and uh, I think that was, I don't know, was a UPW or something like that. I'm not sure. It's yeah, so long that's ago. right. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, but that's Bassman was that guy. He was a promoter, entrepreneur, hustler, you know, uh, love the business. I'm sure he still does, uh, but I haven't talked to him in years. I think he's out of the pro wrestling side of things. Uh, but anyway, he was the, he was the guy that, uh, gave talents that lived in that area an opportunity to get noticed. So he did a great service for a lot of the wannabe pro wrestlers that lived in Southern California because he was accessible local and he had the ear of, uh, WWE. I don't know how many times Bruce went out there to scout. At least he said he was scouting. <laughs> I love you for that. Well, the way he first gets Helwig involved is through a, an outfit called power team USA. And, and this was quite the phenomenon back in the day. How would you explain power team USA where these guys are, you know, doing sort of strong man feats on a big stage and trying to give inspirational messages, but they're in like, I don't know, red, white, and blue wind suits, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was pretty gimmicky actually. Pretty gimmicky, uh, interesting concept. I don't know that I, you know, there's some of those guys he had that I don't know if I'd want to get motiv- motivated by, but nonetheless, it was an interesting concept, an idea and something that he could manage and pull off. And it was colorful. It was different. All those are good things in pro wrestling, having some, having, uh, having a situation where you don't take your eyes off somebody, uh, is what he tried to create. And he did a nice job there. So Rick, uh, was a, was a, was an asset at a point in time there for WWE because everybody wanted to come to WWE. You know, he was, he may have been sending stuff to WCW as well. Hell, I don't know. Eric could probably tell you that better than I, but, uh, we had a good rapport with him. You know, we, we always, he always had backstage passes and, and tickets to Southern California, WWE events. And he was always his his presence is always there. So, but it was a kind of a gimmicky thing. Uh, 
but the nice thing about it, out of it came uh, Warrior and Sting uh, uh, out of that group. And, you know, he, he got them booked in Memphis, which is very famous for booking just about anybody that was different or new to give it a try. That's one thing about Lawler and Jarrett. They didn't have any uh, uh, hesitation about trying something new and a new talent because Lawler could work with anybody. He proved that about for about 50 years. So, you know, he could, he could, he could work with anybody. So that was the situation there. And they didn't last long in Memphis. And then, uh, we got them, changed their name and, and then mid South. So and we'll talk about that, but Bassman, interesting dude, interesting dude. And I appreciate, always appreciated his efforts on our behalf and my behalf personally. So it's all good stuff. Well, it's an interesting time because, you know, just last week we were talking about when you guys were going to anoint Sting as sort of the top guy in WCW, but just a few months prior, the WWF had done that for the ultimate warrior. And it's fascinating to think that these guys started at the same time at the same place as a freaking tag team. Uh, the first tag team name is the freedom fighters. Hellwig is known as justice. Uh, Borden is known as flash. And that all happens in Memphis for the Continental Wrestling Association. And as you said, uh, they're baby faces at first, but quickly turn heel. Dutch Mantel is their manager. And Dutch Mantel is a name that I think is probably under the radar for a lot of uh, fans on the, on the main stage. But God dang, he was a, a great talent and a great mind for the business and the territory system, was he not? Yeah, he still is too, Conrad. Uh, Dutch has got a good mind. Smart guy, uh, uh, knows the, the, the ways and means of, a, of the pro wrestling locker room and the territory and things. You know, we also brought Dutch into the mid South at one point in time, him and that bullwhip of his, I think he called shoe baby. Uh, and he'd pop that bullwhip and it was all that good stuff. So he was a heel there too. Harry, one of the hairiest men in wrestling next to George, the animal steel and Hulk Hogan, Hogan kept his shade. He he's in the same class of Hogan, Lawler, George Steele, and, uh, Whoever else I've mentioned. So, <clears throat> so, uh, but Dutch is a good dude. He was a good dude. He's, he's there and, uh, still there in Tennessee and, uh, <clears throat> has been around, man. He's Dutch booked Puerto Rico to, to pretty good success actually. And, uh, but he was, he was a smart guy. Dutch was, he still is, as I mentioned, but, uh, good dude, a lifer and a lot of respect for Dutch. Well, as you said, it doesn't last too terribly long in Memphis. I mean, a lot of folks are going to get their start in Memphis. I mean, Hulk Hogan went through there and Steve Austin and so many others, but this is the territory days. So when you're not making a bunch of money, one place, well, you try to go somewhere else. And Dutch Mantell had a famous line about Memphis when he said, Jerry Jarrett held a meeting with all the talent and said, okay, boys, we need to make sure that steroids are not a part of your regular routine. You know, we're not saying we're going to do drug testing, but if you're on steroids, you need to get off. And supposedly Dutch Mantel raised his hand and said, steroids, hell, Jerry, we ain't even on food. Uh, <laughs> which is just tremendous. Uh, it says a lot about the pay scale there in Tennessee. But as I said, they wind up in Mid-South Wrestling with Bill Watts, uh, which I guess became the Universal Wrestling Federation in 86. And here Jim Helwig is going to become Blade Runner Rock. Borden is going to become blade runner sting, but he looks a lot different than he would as the ultimate warrior. He's got sort of a spiky haircut, 280 pounds. And you guys did like a, a music video to sort of introduce them. I guess this was sort of the mid South answer to the road warriors. Oh yeah, absolutely. The, uh, road warrior, uh, the president of the road warriors, their image, how they were marketed. They were hot. They were topical. 
two, you know, uh, Hawk and Anna were two big jacked up guys. Uh, and, uh, and we had a younger version of that. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, that was no accident. That was, and it's nothing we were trying to hide. Uh, they were our version of the road warriors and, uh, they were quite the attractions the first time around, but it was easy to see who was the better, better prospect, uh, in that, in that duo. And it wasn't warrior, it was sting. So, uh, yeah, it was a, it was an interesting time. I, I noticed in the very beginning, you know, <clears throat> Helwig was a, I don't know if, it, if introverted is the way to say it, if that's the quite, quite, uh, the right term, I'm not sure it is for now, but he didn't, he didn't, uh, he didn't, uh, factor in, uh, to the rest of the roster. He always seemed, he meaning warrior always seemed to be out of place, Conrad, a little bit in that locker room. He just, he wasn't a, he wasn't an, he wasn't from a team sport, uh, in, in, in reality, he never played sports. Uh, he, he was not a locker room, uh, savvy guy, how you conduct yourself in a locker room with other talents. Uh, so that hurt him a little bit. And, uh, and I think sometimes it just seemed to me like this was the plan B or plan C for him. Something not that he set out to be, but that's a, but the route took him there because that was his best alternative at that point in time. You know, the guy, he's a, he got his degree in chiropractor chiropractor, whatever the word would be, he became a chiropractor that wasn't satisfying enough. And of course I don't have the money is there, but he couldn't, you know, he, he needed spotlight. He needed a spotlight on him. And, uh, so he, it was an interesting thing. He didn't last long in, in, uh, mid, in mid South <clears throat> UWF area. He finally, he went, he didn't go far. He traveled to Dallas and got hooked up with Gary Hart and they've called him the dingo warrior, but he, he never seemed to me that he was happy. I never saw him on a genuinely happy day. I just don't think he was built for the, 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 the locker room, even though people said, well, wait a minute, JR, he, he was, he headlined WrestleMania six with Hogan. He sure did, but that don't mean he was a perfect fit. He was never a perfect fit in pro wrestling. So, uh, it, it will talk about his personalities or go through and it's, it's very consistent. He didn't change a lot. Uh, I, I always thought he was a, a downer. <clears throat> I didn't think he was a, a team player. It was all about him. And he had, uh, he was very outspoken about political issues that he had no business of bringing into the locker room. Uh, people knew that he was a little strange. So, but he went to, he went to Dallas and, uh, got reinvented, I guess, as a single, which is what he wanted to be all along, uh, under the guidance of Gary Hart. And then of course, uh, WWE sees him and says, Oh, look at that jacked up guy. And we, we got to have him before we, have this b- guy, before we talk about world-class, let's do talk about mid South. What, what about what attracted bill Watts to him? Is it just the size and, and knowing how over and how money the road warriors were and thinking, well, goddamn, I can just create my own road warriors here. Yeah, that's it. You hit a nail right on the head. He didn't have a relationship with the uh, Hellwig. We didn't know, uh, either guy. We, we knew that they were trained in Southern California. The link there was to get uh, those dudes into mid South was the fact that red Bastine, one of the greats of all time, uh, red Bastine, uh, was a great friend of bills and they worked together in, uh, in the AWA and other territories and red was a great friend of the Cowboys. So bill looked at red as well. He's trained by red. So <clears throat> I'm going to give this a try. 
and we need new talent. We need some new attractions. And so that's kind of where that, that, that ended up. So red best team, I think was a catalyst because it, it just gave, uh, you know, it just, it gave Cowboys some comfort that at least these guys have been taught fundamentals where they could, where they accepted the fundamentals and could practically use them. Uh, another story till you see them, you don't know. Uh, but nonetheless, red best team was, was a catalyst in getting, uh, both those dudes staying and, uh, and warrior into, into our territory. We, uh, we got to talk about how it sort of came to an end. We know that, you know, it's not like the territory was exactly booming in Memphis when they move on, they're probably not pleased with their pay and it feels like a bigger opportunity to go work for Watts, but why does, uh, Hellwig ultimately move away from Watts territory? He didn't fit. <clears throat> he didn't fit his, his heart wasn't in it. And you can tell that real quickly, you know, how, <clears throat> how much do you learn? The thing about a territory Conrad is that it demands that you improve your game because of this reason you're in the same clubs, the same towns, in other words, the same markets every week, you can't come with the same match. You got to be diversified. You got to add a little, you got to take away a little, you got to change things up because the same paying customer, <clears throat> pardon me, saw you last week. So are you going to do the same routine? And, uh, he was a routine guy. He had, he had set moves. And that's what he did. And of course, Sting on the other hand was so personable that the guys migrated to sting and we, the veterans would give sting some help. You know, they would give him advice and feedback and mentoring, but nobody really cared to help hell with because he's the kind of guy that you'd talk to and you could see in his face, he wasn't listening. He always felt he was smarter than everybody else. Uh, I'm only here because of uh, the money. And when he finds somebody that uh, is a bodybuilder and they're so vain and narcissistic that that's all they care about is their look, not their skill set, just their look. How do I look on this eight by 10? How's my tan? How's my vascularity? All this other shit that, uh, uh, you know, that was his, his MO. So a lot of the guys <clears throat> didn't want to give him the time of day. And uh, so that's kind of that deal. So it just didn't work. I'm sure there were some things going forward, you know, maybe he didn't want to do it, put somebody over or, or the, uh, the, you know, the road agents were saying, Hey, this guy ain't getting any better. He's got a bad attitude, whatever. So cowboy quickly saw who the keeper was in that group in his, in his view. Uh, so even though that you can contradict that theory by saying, well, but what about WrestleMania six? You know, you can't live forever on WrestleMania six, right? And, uh, and if you go back and watch that match, which a lot of people have, uh, you know, Hogan led the match, Hogan, Hogan structured it to where they only did things that warrior could do reasonably well. And that was a short move set. So, uh, cowboy just felt like that he wasn't worth the time or the effort. He didn't have the attitude, uh, very aloof and the sting on the other hand, very congenial, uh, very, uh, locker room oriented. You know, he was, he, everybody liked him. He, I mean, he was a, he was a very likable guy, just like he is today. So I think that was the deal. <clears throat> Cowboy was big on, uh, being uh, loyal to the company and being dedicated. And it didn't seem like uh, the loyalty thing was ever going to come about. And certainly the guy was, had his own agenda and it wasn't a team oriented agenda, even though pro wrestling is probably looked at by a lot of folks as a individual sport, individual entity, if you will, it just was a situation where. This guy didn't seem to be all in. He never seemed to be all in, in our area at that point in time. 
you know, I know this sounds silly, but in this era, it's not like Watts exactly has a performance center. There is no power plant. Like we saw in WCW. How did guys get better in the good old days? They work every day. They work every day. That's one of my biggest concerns about, uh, um, our, 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 with AEW is the fact that I don't believe that a lot of the talents that we have get to work enough. Right. Uh, and, and some of them are making, uh, enough money where they don't want to work anymore. They're com- They're in the comfort zone, which is a danger area to me, but the, that was the deal. The territory, you, like I said earlier, you have to get better <clears throat> to perform in front of the same audience weekly, weekly. It wasn't like today's deal where, you know, of course now there's no, no live events because of the virus. Uh, but in those days you, you, you put guys on the road, you booked them every day. So now they're working, you know, six or seven days a week because in that era, you didn't get, didn't pay, get paid <clears throat> unless you made money or excuse me, unless you were booked. Right. And that's how you made your money. So if you're sitting home, uh, no payday, it wasn't guaranteed contracts and comfort zones and guys on salary. And, and they were all incentivized that the better you get and the more over you can become the more money that we have the chance of drawing and we'll build, we'll bake these big old nice pies and you'll get a slice. The bigger, the bigger, the pie, the bigger your slice. And that was the deal. You, that's how you got better. I, I honestly believe I'm not knocking the performance center cause I helped create the, the developmental program there in, in WWE. Uh, I still believe in it, but there's nothing better than working in front of a paying customer <clears throat> with somebody that's better than you and doing it frequently. And that's what the territory system, uh, produced. They had their, even though it wasn't officially named like a performance center or training center, or whatever the territories were uh, in essence, a training center because you worked all the time, you're expected to get better. And if you didn't get better, somebody's going to take your spot and, and they're going to give, they'll be given a chance to uh, contribute. So that was kind of the thing there with the, the territory thing. We, you know, he should have gotten better. You know, they were, I can't remember who all we booked him with, he, he and Sting, but it was always, uh, guys that were better than them, veterans who could teach them things. If you were willing to listen more often than not, warrior was not willing to listen. Hey guys, are you looking for a great father's day gift idea? I know I was. And I found it a couple of years ago with paint your life with paint your life. You get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget. And it's a great gift idea for your mom, your dad, or both. You see paint your life transforms your photos into a one of a kind, beautiful hand painted portrait done by professional artists. You can upload a photo to create anything you can imagine, maybe in a special location or a favorite pet. There's lots of options. You pick the artist, the medium, and you even get to work with the artist to make sure it's perfect. You get started in less than five minutes and you can get the portrait in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded guaranteed. And right now as a limited time offer, get 20% off. That's right. 20% off and free shipping to get this special offer. Text the word Ross to 87204. That's Ross to 87204. Text Ross to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Let's talk a little bit about some things that happened in, in mid South. Um, Meltzer wrote at the time or somewhere that when Hellwig and, and Borden come in, they automatically have heat with a lot of guys because allegedly Watts had to let some folks go to make room. And one of those folks was Kelly Kaniski. Did you ever hear that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kelly was a nice guy. Son, son of former NWA champion, Gene Kaniski. Kelly was very fundamentally sound. Kelly's issue was he was never going to work on top. Like his dad, he didn't have the charisma that Gene had his father. And so, but I don't know how big a deal that was. I mean, part of the guys that Kelly rode with, right. Sometimes you upset the alpha cart when you screw up somebody's uh, riding partners. Sure. You know, I experienced that when we had the brand split in WWE, some of the long time established riding partners were no longer riding partners and they didn't like it. Uh, you know, we tried to acquiesce the best we could, uh, but it just, it, you couldn't please everybody. So the same thing here, Kelly got, uh, got his notice. I think Bill got him booked. He might've went to Dallas or someplace. Bill did just, just didn't forsake the guy. He, he, Bill had loyalty to Gene and Gene was, he, he were old friends from back in the day. So I'm sure he got Kelly a, a gig, but Kelly was a very popular guy. Everybody liked Kelly. Kelly had been in locker rooms. Kelly had been an athlete. That's why I always said, and I, I still believe the philosophy. I got no, no issue with a bodybuilder, but they're sometimes, and maybe more often than not, they don't make the best pro wrestlers, right? Especially, especially if they haven't participated in any sports whatsoever, if they had never had the locker room experience, if they had never had to have the, the, the back of the, of a teammate and vice versa. So, uh, but, but that was a situation there, but, but it certainly wasn't about the money. Cause I don't, I know Bill didn't, uh, the, the, those guys got a guarantee, but it was, it was minimal because again, you want, they're like commission salespeople. It's like your salespeople at your mortgage company. Uh, you know, they're getting paid for productivity, right? Close, close a deal, make a payday, close another deal, make another payday, sell a ticket in a wrestling match. You make a payday. And so that was a the situation there is always incentivized. Whereas today's world, we find more wrestlers than not in their comfort zone. So they're making great money in their view. And so they're content. They don't want to rock the apple cart. They don't think they have to get better. I, I see guys every, every week that I wonder when is this son of a gun going to turn the corner? He's, you know, there's a different, I got told me this one time when I was officiating college football, uh, about experience. It was this, he said, well, he's been calling games for 15 years. That's why I, I told a guy this and he says, well, here's the deal. He may have had the same experience 15 times. In other words, he hadn't called any big games. He hadn't called it in, in a higher level of competition. He's just repeating what he did last year. He, he's not getting better. He's not getting a better feel for the game and how to manage a football game with uh, aggressive and, and oftentimes violent players on the field. How do you communicate? And how do you, have you improved as a, as official? So uh, that was the thing that's all reverts back to that territory theory. And so we just didn't see, uh, uh, uh hell getting any better. Nobody liked it. And, and it, we tried, 
why wouldn't you want to like somebody? Right. But he wouldn't let you like him. It's kind of how I, I saw it as silly as that may sound. Bill Watts winds up coming out of retirement to work with these guys. And because he's the boss, well, uh, he's the big baby face and Hellwig has to bump for him. And it's been said that Hellwig didn't understand why he had to bump for Watts, who was 47 at the time and not exactly in quote unquote wrestling shape, at least according to what Hellwig thought. Do you have any memories of that, of Watts wanting to get in there with these guys and try to do something? Yeah, it was just part of an angle. Sure, sure. Storyline. The catalyst of that was Eddie Gilbert. Because Eddie Gilbert was the mouthpiece. And Eddie was a great uh, strategist and 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 an outstanding worker. Uh, So, you know, that was kind of part. Hellwig was giving himself more credit than he deserved. It wasn't the fact that Cowboy was going to work with Hellwig. Cowboy was going to work in tags or something, obviously. And yes, the young heels uh, were expected to sell for the veteran babyface. That was the protocol at that point in time. And more importantly, it's what the owner wanted. So it, you know, he, him not understanding how his, why he's got to sell for a 47 year old guy speaks volumes that he never got it. It wasn't just about bill. Oh, you got different. It's about the business. The booker said to do this. And there's a reason for this here. It is, but hell, we never wanted to hear or accept the reasonings. He, if it didn't suit his needs, uh, then instead of asking questions, and investigating and trying to get the, the answers and all these things, uh, he just sulked or mumbled, uh, you know, it never was, this was never a comfortable situation. The guy was not a great communicator. Listen to his goddamn promos. He had no clue what he's saying. And so he was, well, that's, that was cool shit, man. That was cool shit. What did it mean? I don't know what he, what he, how did he talk to him behind the seats? His look got people in the seats. His irreverence got people in the seats. His skill set did not. We should mention that, um, the, the warrior and sting Borden and, and Hellwig here, they're a part of Eddie Gilbert's hot stuff, international group, which was what you were referencing when you said Eddie was sort of the mouthpiece and mm-hmm. over the years, it's come out that around this time, warrior and sting aren't exactly getting along too great. So warrior winds up leaving the promotion, but sting sticks around. And as you said, warrior finds himself in world-class championship wrestling, of course, ran by Fritz von Erich in Dallas. And this is where he would become the dingo warrior. And Jim has said that he took that name because a wrestler told him once he looked like a warrior and he starts here as a heel. He's managed by Gary Hart and he's teamed with uh, a guy. He'd have a lot of interaction with in a few years, Mr. Rick rude. And uh, eventually during a tag match, they have some problems that leads dingo warrior to turning face. He would win the world-class Texas heavyweight title from Bob Bradley and holds on to it until it goes to the WWF. And then of course they vacate the title, but he has some success here in early 87 with world-class and really gets the big break in the WWF. I should mention though, that I think, and this has been written about for years, uh, new Japan pro wrestling is impressed with his look and they wanted to stick him in the big van Vader gimmick. They had the whole headset and this whole idea of what it would look like. Uh, but thankfully he takes the WWF nod instead and Leon white winds up with the big van Vader gimmick. Can you imagine if old no. warrior became Vader? <laughs> no, I can't. I'm sure they thought that was a great, his look got him down the road. So many miles. He always came back to look. That's the promoters to say, well, I'm sure that Fritz thought, because Fritz had a massive ego, just like Cowboy. Uh, 
a lot of those old top guys that became owners of territories had, had significant egos, not a bad thing, but they had them. I'm sure Fritz probably thought, well, I'm smarter than Watts. So he, I'm a Texan. He's an Okie. So I know I'm smarter than him and I can manage this guy. I can make this work. And then they put their top manager with him to try to teach him things in Gary Hart. Again, I just don't know how teachable uh, you got to have an open mind to learn. We, just like today's the situation where black lives matter. I mean, we got to change the way we think and you got to want to change. And I don't think warrior ever felt like he, the wrestling business deserved his extra thought and his extra efforts. Now, would you, if he went, he, he would, he's still happy to go, go to the gym and he did, he looked great. He never not looked great, but then that's where it stopped. And, uh, but Gary, even Gary Hart, one of the great teachers, uh, you know, he got him as far along as probably anybody could have, but I think that was kind of the situation for instance, I can save this guy. He looks too good. He's going to draw too much money. Uh, you know, he's, 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 he's a, he's a, he's a blue chip guy. And he, he might've been a blue chip. Look, ultimate word was not a blue chip human being. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little later. Let's talk about when he starts with the WWF, he comes in as dingo warrior. Bruce Pritchard has said that Vince didn't know what the hell a dingo was. And he felt like there's already a road warrior uh, act out there. There's already a modern day warrior, Carrie Von Eric out there. So during a, a pre-tape promo, Vince communicates that, Hey, we're not going to call you the dingo warrior. Uh, we're just going to go with, uh, with warrior. So in the promo, allegedly, um, ultimate warrior is born and he starts referring, referring to himself as the ultimate warrior at sticks. And he finds himself in a program with Hercules and gets a big match at WrestleMania four. And he's off to the races after this, including uh, winning the intercontinental championship from honky tonk man. And. He starts to have some really big time success compared to what most people probably expected when they saw him in Memphis or they saw him in Dallas. or they saw him with Watts, you're on the other side of the aisle here. You're not a part of the company at the time. Are you surprised to see how well he's doing with, with Vince and that Vince is going with him a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but the thing about it is, is that, uh, you know, when McMahon is on and when he was on, uh, he had a real good gift of marketing packaging. And the key thing that you do there is that you evaluate your talent and you, you make an evaluation of what that talent can do well. And you make sure your road agents and the talents that are working with a warrior for in this example, uh, don't go elsewhere. Don't get out of that guy's strengths or his wheelhouse. I use this example all the time. If you can't throw a good punch, just don't throw one. The, the, the matches aren't necessarily structured for punching anyway. It's not really the name of the games. I think it's wrestling. And so, uh, but Vince had a really good knack for, uh, packaging marketing. And then, so the, so then consequently, and I think a lot of fans will, uh, can identify with this and agree, I hope that his vignettes, his entrance, uh, the, the sizzle around him was more prominent than the stake that he delivered. Uh, but so he, and Vince protected him. Vince had that, he, he, this guy's got the look, people pop when they see him. He does this crazy entrance where he sprints to the ring. Nobody else is doing that, but then that's where it kind of ended. There was a lot of foreplay, but sometimes he couldn't finish. We should mention that, uh, he doesn't have the smoothest ride backstage here in the WWF. It's been pretty well known that he and Rick rude didn't always see eye to eye and had some problems. 
Did you ever talk to Rick about his problems with warrior? No, not specifically. Uh, but I can tell you this, Rick rude was the wrong guy to cross. Right. Especially, uh, on warriors level. I don't know that warrior ever had a fight in his life. I really don't. I don't I have never heard of that. Uh, but he, he dodged a bullet by testing, uh, the patience of Rick rude. He was a no nonsense, badass, And, uh, so that, that wasn't going to be tolerated again. He, the guys don't want to be around people that are aloof and that look down. Look, we're looked down on enough in pro wrestling. Our fans that are listening here today know that, you know, we don't have the greatest image, unfortunately, in, in some, in some circles as uh, we all would like, it's getting better, getting better. Every, uh, every year is getting better. The, the pro wrestling bias is lessened every year in my opinion, but, uh, he, he just didn't seem, he, he just, he was just so impersonal. Uh, and, and his personality was abrasive. And again, he always act like he was gifting us with his presence. Right. And that's just not the way you, you build camaraderie. It's not the way you build a support system. He had to understand that the, the fewer people he pisses off, the better his matches are going to be because people are going to be willing to sell for him and work for him and things of that nature. But he was protected all the way. I think when he beat honky tonk, man, it was like a real quick match. You know, like, yeah. because honky was 10 times a better worker than ultimate warrior, but you know, warrior had the look and, uh, and the sizzle. So, uh, they, they protected him every turn, every turn in the road. Let's, uh, let's also mention your old pal, Bobby, the brain Heenan, uh, warrior had a lot of interaction with him during his first run with the company. I think a lot of people will remember the weasel suit matches. Uh, Bobby Heenan, one of the most unsung heroes of professional wrestling. I mean, he was not just a great commentator, but an incredible manager. And before that, quite the wrestler. And he made Warrior look like a million bucks and fans were loving it. The only trouble is Bobby hated it. Did you ever talk to Bobby about working with Warrior? Yeah, he, he did hate it. He, he didn't like Warrior. Heenan, of course, was Mr. Congeniality. Everybody loved Bobby. And Bobby made sure that he was friendly to people. He, he, Bobby was proud to be in the wrestling business. Bobby was proud of his vocation. Uh, and he was as good in, in his role as anybody I've ever seen talking about the brain, but, uh, Bobby did it because he was a company guy and he also could show all the boys that even though I don't like this prick, uh, I'm going to make him look good because that's my job. That's what I'm asked to do. That's how I booked. So that was kind of the scenario there, but you know, Bobby liked pretty much everybody. But he never, I wrote to Bobby plenty of times and, and, uh, he, he out of the clear blue to say, well, at least we got, we don't have a warrior master call tonight type deal. You know, right. I right. uh, didn't like him. didn't like him. I, I, uh, Conrad, I'm telling you, and I hate to, I'm not going to go overboard or speaking ill of the dead because the guy left a widow and two little girls. And, and that's sad. It's goddamn sad. But the issue is I, I've never talked to anybody in my career and I've been around, you know, these guys for a long, well, from the beginning. I never heard anybody talk glowingly. Oh, he's a good guy. He just said misunderstood. He's a good guy. He wasn't a good guy. And when you, when you walk into a locker room aloof, like you got this, when you don't, and everybody knows you don't, you're just there. You're just bullshitting them. Uh, wrestlers are street smart, man. They can see through that stuff a mile away. So Bobby knew what he had there, but Bobby did his job and Bobby's those, those weasel matches and Bobby's selling and taking those crazy ass bumps and taking an ass whipping, uh, to make warrior look good, uh, was what Bobby did for a living. 
and he was he was going to show everybody that I can get a match out of this guy, and he did. Well, it's funny that you say that because I, we recently heard uh, in the last few years that Owen Hart was Ultimate Warrior's best friend during this run, and then eventually, when Kerry Von Erich comes in, uh, he reconnects with Warrior, and they become big buddies. Did you know anything about Owen or Kerry's relationship with Warrior? Well, Kerry's relationship, of course, stemmed from the WCW, WCCW stuff, the Dallas stuff. Right. And they both were workout freaks. Uh, unfortunately, Kerry understood the business much better than uh, Warrior uh, growing up in it. And uh, so he had a little edge there, without a doubt. So I, I knew that that was where that relationship started. And you go back to look at, you know, our friend Owen. Owen liked everybody. Conrad, him disliking the warrior was not something new or well, but well, Owen liked him. Owen liked everybody. Owen liked everybody. And Owen can also see when a wrestler was struggling, he wasn't being accepted in the locker room. I'm sure Owen's gesture of friendship to ultimate warrior was simply to get warrior to come around and understand what it's like for the, to be in a brotherhood in a, in a pro wrestling locker room. That was Owen. Owen liked everybody and he was willing to help anybody. And he saw that, uh, a warrior was that had potential. He could maybe draw some money. Everybody, if you draw money, you, everybody else makes some of that money as well. Again, uh, it's the old pie thing. If a warrior could help us bake big pies and I'll get a bit nicer slice and f- so be it. But that was kind of the thing there. Owen liked everybody and Owen was trying to be, uh, the, the great teammate and, uh, help this guy get on, on better footing and be better accepted by his peers. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here. We know what happens eventually after he becomes the intercontinental champion, he has uh, a collision course with Hulk Hogan. He becomes a made man at WrestleMania six, when he is not only the intercontinental champion, but now the world champion having defeated Hulk in the main event in the sky dome. This is uh, a really, really big deal. And it's happening, uh, sort of, uh, across the aisle from you guys. I mean, you're trying to put uh, Ric Flair and Sting in the same ring together. Sting gets hurt. There's a bit of a delay. It doesn't happen before WrestleMania six. It happens after, but it is pretty remarkable that within a handful of months, two guys who started together as tag team partners are now sitting atop the wrestling world as world champions. And the similarities are there. Crazy hair, face paint, big energy. But I've always wondered what if things were a little different? What if instead of WCW landing sting, what if instead warrior sticks around Watts territory, he winds up joining Crockett. Could you have seen these guys switching places and perhaps at WrestleMania six, it's Hogan and sting and at great American bash. It's flair and warrior. Uh, give me a shot. Give me ch- uh, chills to think that, uh, no, no, I thought the warriors push was Strictly aesthetic oriented, uh, again, the, the, the colorful attire, the face paint was creative. Uh, you know, he had a lot of energy on his entrance anyway, but no, I, I, I have a hard time comparing other than what you pointed out. They started together. They're big muscular guys and, and all that stuff. I have a hard time looking at, uh, that's about where it ends because sting wanted to learn sting was willing to learn. He had patience. He had time for everybody. He was respectful and warrior was none of those things. So I'm glad that he went to WWE. Look, he got the biggest push of his life at WrestleMania six. It didn't last very long. 
We really didn't. For that kind of push to 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 that star sh- shine brightly, and then it, it it fizzled out. So no, I don't. Uh, I I, don't, I wouldn't want to think of that. Uh, Crockett got the better deal with Sting by by far, and uh, and Vince and his where it's more uh, structured, more, more you could be your heart, your heavier produced. You know, the NWA in that era with, with led by flair was more, at, more old school working, uh, you know, all these things. It was just more tradition. Uh, and then McMahon was a little different, had a little different promotion. The matches are different. There are a lot of gimmicks and this thing, and the other, you know, uh, I just, no, I, I can't see that ever. I'm glad it didn't happen. But uh, whoever got Sting got the better guy. What do you think Vince could have done? Like we know how this run is going to work out with uh, the Ultimate Warrior and, and the WWF here in 1990. But if Sting would have been the guy beating Hogan in Toronto, do you think Sting would have become an even bigger superstar than he became? Oh hell yes, absolutely. Because WWE was looked at as the the the, the, the big dog in the yard. And, uh, and Sting kept evolving. Conrad, he kept improving. His game got better. Look at some older Sting matches. You see great athleticism and individual things that he did really, really well. But over time, he learned to connect all the dots and, and build continuity in his matches. I never saw Warrior get any better uh, after he went to WWE than he was in any other territory. Uh, or, and he didn't, did he get better in, w, in uh, WWF? No. I don't think so. Right. So, uh, yeah, Sting, Sting was a star. Sting was so God dang loyal to WCW that, you know, he, he could have gone to WWF at any time. If contractually, uh, if he was not contractually obligated and would have been a major star there, but he was a quality human being. That's kind of how that works more often than not. You see guys that are renegades that have long careers, but really do they based on what they could have had. Sting was a perfect locker room guy, nobody better. And, uh, and, and then you got warrior who didn't, you know, he, he would warriors, the kind of guy that would come in and demand his own locker room. Right. That was always a tip off to me when a talent says, I got to have my own locker room. Why, why can't you dress with a talent? You know, you go to the NFB, you know, Tom Brady don't have a separate locker room. The, all on these, that's a basic illustration, but sure. It just didn't work, man. I, I can't stress this enough. Smoke and mirrors, smoke and mirrors and great marketing. That's what made ultimate warrior a star. Let's talk about, you know, this run in 1990, you know, I mean, of all the people that Hulk Hogan could have passed the torch to, and let's be clear when he's breaking in, when you're working with him, you know, in 85 and 86, it, Hulk Hogan is already the tippy top guy. Would you have ever imagined that this guy who you thought had a bad attitude and was a bodybuilder and didn't want to learn and all the negative stuff that you've pat, that you've sort of described, would you have ever imagined that this would be the guy that Vince McMahon would ask Hulk Hogan to pass the torch to? No, I, I wouldn't, but I was, uh, I was, I applauded the, the boldness, uh, of the booking, uh, it was a baby face match. When's the last time? Uh, you had a true baby face match at re- uh, headlining WrestleMania, right? Been a while. Uh, and go back and think, uh, if you're answering this question out there in podcast land, uh, yeah, no, I was, I was a little surprised, but Vince was in love with the look. 
He was in love with the look. And what was there not to love? A warrior had a phenomenal physique. He worked hard to establish it, even though it was obvious he had, uh, he had help, uh, supplemental help. Cause you don't look like that naturally. You can't, I don't think maybe I'm wrong. Uh, of course that's one fat guy describing a bodybuilder. So I don't have a lot of ground to stand on. Uh, but no, I was surprised, but again, the boldness of the booking and McMahon's ability to convince Hogan that this is what we should do was next to brilliant. And then Hogan, to his credit, pulled a warrior through my God, Conrad, they had a 20 plus minute match. Yeah. And it's probably the best match that he ever had. And we've heard that Pat Patterson was heavily involved in that. So for Pat Patterson to get such a great match out of it is, is really remarkable, but I guess, you know, and I know we've been, we've been negative about warrior so far, but my point about would you've ever guessed, this is the guy. I didn't mean that in a negative way. I'm just saying on some level. Warrior was a hell of an overachiever. Wouldn't you agree? Well, I mean, yeah, I guess, about, you know, I guess he was, I don't know. I, I have a biased opinion of him and that's sad for the show. I'll try to be more, more, uh, you know, objective, but, uh, yeah, he might've been an overachiever, but I don't, but to be an overachiever means you're trying to get better. You're trying to improve your game. Well, my point he this, is he did the same thing every goddamn night. I get he that, did. but, but. People have criticized Ric Flair for doing the same thing every night. And and the reason he did is because once you sort of have signature spots, that's what people want to see. And and I know over the years, you and he even talked about this a little bit last week about the supposed heat between Ole and Rick. And over the years, one of the criticisms that Ole throws around a lot is he did the same goddamn match every night. But if he sit down and ask Rick about that, he says his favorite wrestler as a kid was Ray Stevens. And if he went to see Ray Stevens and he didn't do the little Upside down. Uh, yeah. Then he was disappointed. And so he didn't want anybody to come to our Ric Flair match and not get to see all the Ric Flair shit. So he had those signature spots that yes, he did all the time, but he wanted to make sure everybody, you don't want to go. His point is you don't want to, you know, go to an Elvis concert and not hear the hits and just hear the new shit. No, let's, I want to hear why I'm here. Like play yeah. that Elvis shit that made me buy a ticket. So I, I get it. But I, my point about the ultimate warrior being a bit of an overachiever is how many guys in this era were jacked to the gills and looked like a million bucks, Billy Jack Haynes, Hercules, et cetera, et cetera. Vince didn't go with them. There was something about the charisma, way- charisma, yes. Conrad. He had charisma. He had the look, he had the feel, he created energy, his, his music, uh-huh. the, his presentation was sublime. And that was all Vince. It was a beautiful presentation. My point about the warrior. One of the great things, one of the important, most important things you have to have as a pro wrestler is you have to understand how to implement crowd psychology into your match, when to do this, when to do that, when to back off, when to, when to charge, when to go in reverse. Uh, and he never improved on that. Uh, and then that's what was disappointing. I'm not, Hey, look, he was never going to be Jack Briscoe or Dory Funk jr. Right. He wasn't going to be any of the great Ricky steamboats or any of those cats that could work and then understood thoroughly crowd psychology. And he'd never tried to get to that level. He never got better at crowd psychology. He, 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 he just didn't. And so that's, that's my, one of my big bitches about him is that, you know, he was, he was complacent. He felt, he felt he was so entitled why he was so entitled. I have no, no clue. I really don't know. 
his personality, whatever. But he always felt like he was above the wrestling business. And therefore, by being above the wrestling business, he didn't want to come back and, and enjoy the company or enjoy the locker room and understand crowd psychology. And so that's where my bitch with him is about. I don't care how many clotheslines he did or shaking the ropes or whatever. That didn't bother me. But not committing to learning the, the intricacies and the nuances of pro wrestling did bother me. Well, we know that he's, uh, not going to be world champ for long. He holds the belt until Royal rumble, 1991, where he loses it to Sergeant slaughter. And it feels like maybe a little bit of, uh, lack of confidence in the warrior by Vince McMahon, because we're going back to what we know for WrestleMania seven. It's going to be Hulk Hogan on top with the world title, but at that WrestleMania seven show. Warrior again has one of the matches that people still talk about to this day as the being the best of his career. It's against Randy Savage in a retirement match. Uh, you've seen both. Which did you think was better? The WrestleMania six bout with Hulk Hogan or seven with Savage? Well, they're both very good. The, I would say the WrestleMania main event was probably his finest hour because he got anointed and got, got to sit on the throne for a while. Uh, but the, look, Randy Savage, as much as, uh, he was a unique personality. I described that, uh, I never was overwhelmed working with Randy because he, he was so unpredictable. Maybe that's a good thing in some folks eyes. Uh, but when you're broadcasting with somebody, you kind of got to know where they're going so that you can, you can, as a point in the play by play guy, especially in a three man booth is no more than a point guard. It's the play by play guys job to keep the rudder in the water, distribute the ball, get everybody involved and, and everybody be telling like stories. The story, all traveling the same road. So, uh, Randy was a little bit, uh, challenging in that regard, but, but Randy Savage was a phenomenal worker, phenomenal worker. And from the territory days and working with his dad, Angelo Papo, and all those things, Randy had been to territory, he'd been in the promotion business. Randy Savage was a great, great in-ring talent. I'll never, ever dis discredit that, but, uh. Uh, I, I just, it was just a matter of, uh, if you have a bad match at WrestleMania with Randy Savage, man, you are the total shits. So Randy Savage got a great match out of warrior, but I think the spotlight, there's more pressure on closing the WrestleMania Conrad than closing than being in a semi main, uh, on the card, right? Less, it's a little more pressure. So I, I would give the nod simply because of the position on the card and the booking to the Hogan match. Vis-a-vis -vis the, uh, savage match, but it was a fine hour for, for Randy because Randy did what a lot of people thought couldn't do. And don't think that Randy wasn't competitive with Hogan. Randy was, a, a, Randy knew what happened at WrestleMania six, right? He, you know, he was there, uh, I'm, I'm, uh and, and he knew it, So there's co the competitive level between savage and Hogan was always prevalent, always present. So he wanted to go out and have a better match with warrior, the match that nobody could have a great match with. And he's only had one that was with Hulk Hulk and Randy would want to go out and, and, uh, and, and Trump, what Hulk did. And so, uh, there was something, there's another understory underlying story there, but I, I like the WrestleMania match better to answer your question a week ago. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about SummerSlam 91 along the way, uh, Vince and warrior are, uh, negotiating back and forth. And ultimately it's been said over the years and, and obviously warrior disputed this, that warrior was holding Vince up for more money. But as soon as the match leaves the ring, uh, he is no longer a part of the company. 
this is the old game of a uh, telephone, telegram, telewrestler. What were you guys hearing about SummerSlam 91 and the ultimate warrior <laughs> no longer being a part of the company? N- not much normal wrestling scuttlebutt. Uh, you know, we had all we could say grace over in Atlanta. Uh, but I mean, it wasn't sh- shocking to those of us that have been around you know, it, 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 he ran his course. He, he's that bright star shining brightly. It fizzled out. And, uh, for, for McMahon to put all that money and all that very intricate and, and very sensitive booking into, to warrior and then say, okay, I, it's, it's not going to work. It tells you a lot because Vince is not big on giving up on a talent that has, that, that has potential to be a, a top main event star. And, uh, but he, he, he came to the end of his rope. The guy was, he was more problem, more and created more problems than he was worth. And Vince finally said enough's enough. I guess my point is, you know, this is definitely the WCW that was, was jumping at the chance to sign former talents from the WWF. Was there at least to your knowledge in 91, any sort of conversation about what, if we could get him? No. None. It is fascinating when you think about it though, because one of the top stars, you know, it might be the top star besides Sting is, is Ric Flair for the NWA. And so the idea that he's now unhappy and, and that belt shows up at SummerSlam 91, it does feel like you could have done essentially a trade. Now, of course that wouldn't have been the original idea, but if Flair's going North, it would feel like somebody in Turner would say, well, damn, we got to get him down here, but that doesn't happen. No, well, but we all knew we, we, he's, he's a, he was a problem child. He, he limited skill set, Conrad limited skill set. Now I ain't going to fall in love with this fucking eight by 10 here. Uh, we, uh, we were, the interest is why do you want to bring a poison into your locker room that has marginal wrestling skills who always wants a, something different, something better. And so, well, that's sort of, that's American way. We want everything wants things better. He was, ir- he was irrational. And again, the cancer in the locker room. There's enough of those. You already have enough of them and, and this based on the normal course of business. And it's still applicable today. You eliminate the goddamn cancers. You don't want that in your locker room. And sometimes you got to bite the bullet. Well, this guy could probably draw us a house or two. Maybe we could have brought warrior down, got him just vignettes, getting some squash matches on TV, uh, shoot an angle with a heel and get a good, uh, get a one off at a pay-per-view that might've been able that probably was, uh, doable. But the journey from bringing him in to, to getting the match in the ring for your big show that you've been building was always an adventure and was always w- with consternation and, and issues. Well, we know that he eventually mends fences and comes back to the company, but in late 92, amid all of the steroid controversy, uh, unfortunately warrior fails and, uh, they cut him loose. He winds up leaving the company on November 21st, 1992. Uh, Vince McMahon would claim that it was warrior experimenting with growth hormone that led to his departure. I think the rumor and innuendo is he, uh, in a hotel room left a bunch of needles for someone to find and they realized who it was. And one thing leads to another, and now they've got sort of no choice. But around this same time, it becomes a bit of a pissing contest because in 1993 warrior changes his name to warrior. So Jim Helwig is now the warrior legally, and the company is trying to prevent him from using that in his personal marketing, saying that no, they own the ultimate warrior trademark. 
And he's saying, no, I've been the dingo warrior since I was in Texas doing the exact same act. And, uh, now it's my legal name. So he can't, they can't do anything about it, but this is really one of the first times we hear of a talent legally changing their name. What do you think about, uh, Jim changing his name legally to warrior? Well, it was a way for him to, to, to take a shortcut and be able to market himself off all the, uh, all the hype and all the marketability that, uh, WWF had, had, uh, had, had done for him. Uh, it was in some ways it was a shrewd business move. The motivation was financial, obviously. Sure. And the, he's the, he was always a defiant guy. And so he said, I'll, I'll show the system. I'll, fuck that. I'll, I, if I change my name, they can't keep me from using my name. Right. So that was a story there. I, I, you know, he just, he, he had a motive. He had ulterior motive for doing it. And I don't know that that motive was, was tremendously, uh, honorable. Let's talk a little bit about, um, the independent dates that he does. I mean, he's still, even though he's not actively a, a part of big time wrestling, whether it's WWF or WCW at the time, he makes an occasional and very sporadic independent shot in like 93, 94, 96. Um, and he even starts a, a warrior university, which is a wrestling school. Uh, did you, I mean, listen, I, I'm not trying to, as you would say off the air, gut and quarter the guy, but an ultimate warrior wrestling school that feels a bit like an oxymoron, right? Yeah. <laughs> you kinda, <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, Lance storm. Okay. I'm with it. Like that guy fundamentally sound. Don't remember seeing a bad Lance storm match ultimate warrior wrestling school. I mean, maybe he could teach on, on look and charisma and, and, and diet and exercise and all that stuff. But I don't know how much he could teach you about the mechanics of putting together a match, right? Of course not. It was strictly financially driven using his name and his reputation. His tenure in WWE is enough to entice a lot of naive young talents that want to have similar success going to the warrior wrestling school. And that was to me, that was the entire calling card. He couldn't, you know, he, he, it's just. He couldn't teach anybody the fundamentals of wrestling. He didn't know the fundamentals of wrestling. He couldn't teach somebody crowd psychology because he didn't have crowd psychology. He had a name that he could market and invite entice, better said, uh, these young cats to, to pay a tuition and come to his school. I don't even know how, how many guys went to a warrior school. I've never talked to anybody that went to it. Uh, and I don't know how long it lasted. It didn't last long because until we brought it up here today, I'd forgotten all about that. Let's also mention that this is the era where the WWF and WCW is down. I mean, professional wrestling is down in 93 and 94 and 95 and in early 96, uh, the conversation starts brewing again. Hey, what about the ultimate warrior? And Bruce has said a lot on something to wrestle that Lisa Wolf used to say a lot. Vince just needs a hit. Uh, at this point, he's lost Hulk Hogan and he's trying to find the magic that he had a decade before with the original WrestleMania and being the king of pay-per-view, but by the mid nineties, all that's gone. And what we've got is Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart and Kevin Nash. And these are talented guys, but for whatever reason, business is just not hitting the peak. It was a decade prior. So if Hogan is locked up and doing things for WCW, maybe he looks to the other guy that 
was there when business was big and that's the ultimate warrior. When do you remember that first becoming a, a topic of conversation within Titan towers? Cause now at this point you're in that organization. When do you remember Vince first saying, what about warrior? Oh, mid nineties, you know, uh, they, Vince said he was having some conversation with warrior and, you know, then of course Vince tries to, he knows everybody's mindset on warrior is not positive. So Vince is trying to, you know, Vince would say, well, you know, he's changed a lot. He's matured, you know, he can help us. He's still got that great name identity. He still looks wonderful, blah, blah, blah. And everybody that was in the room, uh, was kind of looking at their shoes like, oh shit. Right. Well, you know, dealing with this guy is a massive pain in the ass. And, and the thing about it is it's not just, okay, your job, like my talent relationship job, I dealt with a lot of talents. that were pains in the ass. However, uh, you could deal with it one-on-one as long as they didn't alienate the locker room and, and they weren't a negative influence in the locker room. And he was, and we, there was nothing we could do about that. The perception of this guy was negative. It was counterproductive, but Vince, of course, being Vince McMahon was, well, I can make, I can, much like I, I used the Fritz von Eric analogy earlier you know, where Fritz said, so, well, I can make this guy a star. Uh, if watch, watch couldn't manage him. I know how to manage athletes, blah, blah, blah. And so Vince probably had the same mindset in, in theory. Well, the guy's matured. We've all gotten better at what we do. Uh, we'll bring him in and, and, uh, it will take care of him and he'll help us. And, uh, little we know is this going to be the start of another giant pain in the ass, a tenure. Talk to me about your first meeting with him. I mean, is this a call that Vince makes to him and then sets up a, a deal with you or. Is this something where he says, Jim, just take his temperature, feel him out. See if we can get face to face. He was uh, much like when we negotiated with the NWO. Uh, I told Vince that the, we're, we're going to get better results in signing Hogan, Paul and Nash. If Vince is in the big initial conversation so they can see they're dealing with the, the head of the company, which is what they needed, which they demanded, which they thought they deserved. Cool. No problem here. Uh, as long as we get him signed, that's what the boss wanted. And we did get him signed. Uh, after Vince's meeting, I took over that situation and, and I always had good interactions with Kevin Nash, still a great friend of mine. Hogan, I didn't know well, uh, it was a very business relationship at, at best. Uh, Scott, I'd known forever. I like Scott still do. Uh, but warrior was a guy that needed Vince's. He, he had to have Vince as his guy. He would not, he was not, he, he felt he deserved that. And none of us other peons, uh, were qualified enough to, to interact with him, his greatness. And so, uh, but yeah, I, I had, I remember going, I don't know if we're, we're at this part of our, our, our story or not, but you know, uh, I remember Vince, Linda, mm-hmm. myself, and I think Cornette actually. Bruce Pritchard was there too. Brucey went to Arizona, right? Yep. And. I never heard so much foul language and look, we all are guys sometimes and, and, you know, curse and F bombs and stuff, but I try to, when I'm around somebody's wife, right. That's different, different ball game, man. It showed me this son of a bitch had no respect for anybody, including women. Linda McMahon is nice a person as, as there is in, as I ever work with ever sweetheart of a woman. I, I really like Linda. Uh, Southern bell, 
You know, we, we oh, used to kid about that, our backgrounds and how similar they were, what our mamas cooked and all these things. But him to do the F-bomb, the C-word, and this and that and the other, and try to explain destrucity, his new word. Right. It was always, it's going to be the foundation of Warrior University. It's a theory. It's a feeling. It's a vibe. It's, you know, horse shit. You know, go listen to uh, some other motivational speaker you're stealing your shit off of. Uh, so uh, it was, I, I lost all, uh, all respect at, on that meeting. I don't know what Bruce has said about it, but it was, you know, we, we were, we were flabbergasted and Vince was buying it. And, and then you got Bruce there, me, Cornette, three pretty good advisors, pretty good hands and ignored. Vince, this, this, this ain't going to work. You know, all right, pal, we're going to make this work, pal. It'll work. I'll take care of it. No, you can't change the son of a bitch's mindset. You can't change his philosophy. He is what he is. As long as you recognize and identify what he is, you might be able to get something out of him, but it's not going to be anything near what you, how you had him ready the first time, uh, at WrestleMania six with Hogan. It's not going to happen, but Vince hardheaded, stubborn, the trade of a lot of promoters, uh, thought he could, he thought he could resurrect this guy. And, uh, with some sort of, you know, some plan, but destrucity and being there in Arizona and, you know, warrior needed money real bad and, but he didn't act like it, but he did. And so, uh, he, he, he was just, it was all about the money, man, all about the money. And I look, I understand that. I understand your pros. You got to make your money while you can is a, you got a short shelf life compared to other professions, but my God, you got to commit something. You got to put something back in to get something out. And he was never really overly overwhelmed and willing to put things back in that he was rece- receiving. Excuse me. Let's, uh, let's talk about destrucity for a minute. In my research, Jim, I learned that uh, warrior said the meaning of this is the truce between destiny and reality. He's saying, uh, stay true to what you are right now. While striving for your ultimate destiny, uh, with that understanding, uh, you're a big believer in destrucity. Shit, no! Come <laughs> on, come on, God! It means the de- the difference between reality and fuck that. Get out of here! Sell that shit to somebody else, will you? We're not stupid. That was the thing about this guy. He thought he was smarter than everybody else. I guess because he was a fucking chiropractor. Hell, I don't know. Let me ask uh, when you're in this meeting, I know we're talking about comic books. We should mention warrior had a comic book and I think he wanted Vince to commit to buying like half a million copies or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure, as you've said before, that he wanted to know about the, you know, the number of dates and the amount of money, but is creative discussed. Like, was he under the impression he was going to come back in 1996 and be headlining shows and, and be the world champion, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think uh, creative was ever discussed to any degree other than you know, you're going to be used very well, uh, type deal from Vince. Uh, he was, his issue was, you know, I I've often said that talents leave a company for one of the two C's cash or creative. Sure. He was concerned about the cash creative was not a big issue to him because he knew that Vince was not going to job him out. No. He wasn't going to be working the opening match. He wasn't a pro prelim guy. And he wasn't with the money that we were going to pay him. You couldn't put him in a prelim spot. That'd been a bad investment in, in more than one front. 
Uh, but no, man, he, he was just, a, it was all about, he wanted to work less and make more. He wanted to have a big say in, you know, what towns he worked and what, you know, it's my God, we had nobody on the roster that had that mindset, nobody that had that mindset that it was, you know, micromanage his own deal. So nonetheless, that's where, where we were with him. I just, I, I, I really believe Vince fell in love with the character back in, in, in WrestleMania six era. He never fell out of love with the guy, even though he was a pain in the ass and he was let go. I could look in the mirror and say, well, he let me go a couple of times too, but I hung around 26 years, but I goddamn sure put some, something in to get to, to, to take what I believe was mine to get out. So, uh, but that destricity thing we that whole meeting was about destricity. He was so believed, you know, he, what's that guy's name? The tall guy, the motivational speaker, Tony Robbins, Tony Robbins. He kind of felt like he was a jacked up Tony Robbins. Only was, and they both had those huge white teeth. Much like Matt Hardy, those goddamn Bruce Dern teeth, uh, huge, the world's most dangerous teeth, Matt Hardy. Uh, and I like Matt a lot. Uh, but you know, no Conrad, he's, it was, it was a selfish deal. It was all one-sided. This is what he had. He had to have this, he had to have that high maintenance. And here's the thing you're bringing a guy back in the locker room who nobody likes anyway. Then you give him, you give him a nice deal, telephone, telegraph, telewrestler, as you referred earlier. Uh, and the boys kind of assumed what he was making. They assumed what he, you know, he was getting, uh, how he was getting treated. Even things, little things he's coming back. He's already flying first class. Well, now it's not, it's not a, it's not a big issue now because a lot of people aren't flying, but nonetheless. So all of a sudden he's getting the a one treatment. He, he left, he's been fired. He's a, he's a, he's a dissident. He's a malcontent. And now we're going to take care, really take good care of him. It, a lot of guys, it didn't set well, and I can understand why I had to justify it. I had to try to justify the talent. Hey, look, this is good. See some money in this guy. If he gets over again, we'll all make money. And that's really the bottom line. We all make more money. If this guy gets over, whether we like him or we don't irrelevant, he's on the team. He's got a Jersey. Uh, it's our obligation to try to make this work. And I didn't get a lot of support on that theory. Well, WrestleMania 12 is a real test of all that. He's going to return here. Um, and he's going to squash under her Selmsley in one minute and 39 seconds during the match. Of course, warrior completely no sells the pedigree triple H, but this is before he's called triple H Hunter Hearst Helmsley, relatively new to the company. Uh, he, uh, was at WrestleMania 11, just in a backstage capacity starts right after WrestleMania 11. So Hunter's first WrestleMania experience is losing to the ultimate warrior in a minute and a half. How does he, uh, get the short straw here? So to speak, did he know that warrior was going to just completely kill his finish? Uh, what can you tell us about this match? Pro, uh, Hunter probably had an idea. The match was going to be the shits and it was, uh, but you, you book it so short and so explosive that you don't allow the extra time to expose the warrior. The deal with, uh, with, with Hunter was the fact that he already was a hell of a good worker and he, we knew that he could take care of, uh, of warrior and be in the right place at the right time to not exploit the warrior's weaknesses. That's a mark of a great talent. And, 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 and triple H is a great talent. So it wasn't a punishment. It wasn't some con conspiracy theory. It wasn't a test him. How will he react to this or whatever? It was just the fact that we needed to be the heel that could work. 
and not expose the warrior's weaknesses. Right. And Paul Levesque could do that very, very well and did. He bit the bullet. He sucked it up. And I think he gained a lot of respect from the locker room and certainly with the old man by doing his job as assigned at WrestleMania 12. The, uh, next thing for the warrior after this is he's, uh, working with Goldust for the intercontinental championship at in your house seven, of course, warrior wins by count out. So he doesn't win the title. The next night on raw, he defeats Isaac Yankum, the future Kane, a rematch happens with Goldust on May 27th and the uh, King of the ring qualifier tournament. It ends in double DQ, which eliminates both men and eventually gives Vader a buy into the semis. But then fast forward and warrior is working with your old pal, Jerry, the King Lawler at King of the ring, but leading up to the match, they do a face-to-face confrontation slash interview on raw that Vince is conducting and Jerry has uh, a portrait of the ultimate warrior that he wants to gift to warrior. But of course he hits him over the head with the picture. Now this, I guess is, is decent enough creative. But it sort of sucks when warrior comes out wearing a fucking baseball cap. No one has ever seen the ultimate warrior wear a baseball cap. And yet here he is wearing a cap allegedly because he didn't want to get cut by the glass. What do you remember about this silly shit of the ultimate warrior in a baseball hat? Selfishness, lack of trust, lack of understanding. You're working for Jerry Lauder for God's sakes. You think Lauder's going to hurt you? No, he isn't. You think that you're the first guy to get hit over the head with a frame pitcher? No, you're not. But that he, he had to, he influenced his angle because it was convenient for him. And the fact that his balls are small, that fit in a thimble. And he decided to, to basically hijack the angle because again, Lauder was no spring chicken at that time. And of course he's already proven the fact that, Hey, if I got to put the owner of the territories, a whopping 47 over, uh, and I didn't like that then I don't like it now. So it was, it was, it was a chicken shit move and nobody knew he was going to do it. I didn't know he was going to do it. I thought, you know, well, maybe that's what he and Vince worked out. I have right. no idea, but that's not the, that's not the way that it was. He went to business for himself and, uh, it shit all over the angle. Yeah, it does. Uh, it starts to, uh, the wheels start to run off a little bit. Warrior beats Owen Hart by DQ on the July 8th raw. And then Warrior scheduled a team with Shawn Michaels and Ahmed Johnson to face Con- Owen Hart. Conrad, let me interrupt here in a second. Okay. Did you do you notice that we've talked about here in the last few few two in three few things you said? Uh he has a count out with gold dust. Yep. He has a uh uh he finally gets a win over over Isaac Yankum. Uh he of- has the thing with Lawler. Everything's for he has one pinfall win. Now people can say, well, that was that screwed him. The reason he wasn't given a bigger push is that the lack of confidence, right? He still was a volatile combustible talent that you could not really fully trust ever. And so that's why all those finishers were, were kind of left-handed in that regard. So, uh, Owen Hart DQ on raw, you know, I love Owen was about uh, 800 times better worker than, than, than warrior, obviously. But, you know, to protect Owen somewhat, they did the DQ. If the full, the confidence had been fully in place with warrior, then he would have won the match. He'd have won the match by pinfall, but that's not how it worked out because a lack of trust. Let's, uh, 
Let's talk about what was supposed to happen at In Your House 9. It's supposed to be Sean, Ahmed Johnson, and Warrior on one side, Owen Hart, Davey Boy, and Vader on the other. But instead, the WWF winds up firing Warrior because he missed several house shows. And he would say he's taking time off to grieve the death of his father. Vince McMahon claimed that Warrior had not seen his father in 10 years and did not care much for him. This all comes from their previous conversations, I'm sure. But Warrior is going to dispute Vince's claim, saying the real reason why he no-showed those events was a breach of contact or contract by Vince McMahon in which the WWF sold Warrior's merchandise without giving him a proper percentage. And Meltzer would report officially. Uh, Jim Helwig was officially suspended by the WWF on July 8th due to missing shows the prior weekend in Indianapolis, Detroit, and Pittsburgh. The suspension, which was announced later that evening at the Raw show, was effective immediately. Psycho Sid will take all of Helwig's announced bookings starting on the 11th in Albany and continuing through the 21st, which is the international pay-per-view uh, in Vancouver. Sid was flown to Stamford on the 8th while Shawn Michaels, Ahmed Johnson, and Jim Cornette, who worked Providence the previous night, stayed in town to do a series of vignettes that would run throughout Raw, hinting of a secret third partner for the main event against Owen, Davy Boy, and Vader. They finally announced the partner and have Sid do an interview at the end of the show teasing that it would be one of several others. WWE figurehead president gorilla monsoon announced the suspension to fans saying that no matter how popular ultimate warrior was no wrestler was above missing his scheduled appearances and letting down the fans and monsoon then stated that warrior would be welcome back provided he posts an appearance bond, which in fact is basically the truth. There was a lot of negativity among the wrestlers regarding bringing Hellwig back unpunished for missing the shows. Vince McMahon told Hellwig that he would be brought back provided he post a large bond, which he would forfeit to the WWF if he, in fact, no showed another card. And the exact amount Hellwig would be required to post is still to be negotiated, but it's been said to be in excess of $100,000. Jim is said to have neither agreed to the price nor indicated that he won't meet the price in order to return. But the belief is that he will return this appearance bond thing. This is something I've never heard of ever before in wrestling. Is this new to you too? Uh, the only thing is ever comparable to it is the, the, uh, bond that the NWA champions used to have to put up right. 20, 25 grand. Uh, and that's just to keep everybody on the up and up and honest. It, you know, it, it's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary uh, circumstance. Uh, you know, what, how do you, how do you bill somebody? How do you, how are you willing to positively book someone that you can't trust? Right. And to the degree that they got to put up a six figure or six figure plus a uh, security bond cause, Hey, look, we don't trust you. You, you, you know, showed major clubs for us. Uh, the fans are expecting to see you, you craft on them. Uh, so why, why, who's to say that you won't do it again. So it was unprecedented in that respect. I'd never heard of it before or since in WWF or WWE now, uh, but it's just another illustration that Vince finally knew, he, not finally, he knew he couldn't, he couldn't trust the guy. So here's what we're going to do to ensure the fact that, uh, he makes his bookings. Look, we, I had to, I had to call the guy and here's where we're going to, why am I booked there? Who am I booked with? What's the finish? Well, Jim, you're going to go over. Okay. Uh, but you know, will I go on early or late? You know, I might be able to catch a flight out whatever. Jesus Christ almighty. So, so what you're saying is that 
you want to hang around the boys as little as you have to. Right. And yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm old school in that regard. Uh, you know, uh, Conrad, I just shoot, man. I mean, you, you should, these guys are helping you make a living. They're giving you their body. Right. And, and when you're willing to give the ultimate warrior your body, you are a team player and you've got balls. <laughs> uh, one of the big things that I guess is the, uh, the crux of warriors complaint. Uh, this comes out in the observer reportedly he was in Indianapolis on June 28th and had a telephone blow up with McMahon regarding something he saw at a licensing show a few days earlier. WWF sources claim that at no point did Hellwick complain about his WrestleMania payoff in the argument, but instead he blew up because he saw a slogan of always believe being used as a WWF marketing slogan. He felt that was his personal slogan that he had used for years and that the WWF hadn't paid him for the use of the slogan and felt the items with that slogan should have been his items and he would have been informed of them and receive a cut of them as well. Many in the company, particularly in the marketing department were upset because Hellwig apparently blew up at people in that department and also because of the way he handled his no-shows. He claimed on a July 1st interview with Bob Ryder on prodigy that he was having no problems with the WWF that caused him to miss the weekend shows and that he couldn't understand why the announcements were made about him in the buildings saying he missed the shows because of the death of his father. Where'd you land on this? The, the, uh, the situation with always believe and then him no showing and he's claiming it's not because of that. It's because of the passing of my father and Vince not buying it. Always believe was another, uh, attempt to, uh, legally extort more money. That's all. That's all it was. You know, uh, he didn't own that, that, uh, phrase. It was, it wasn't like it was two unique words. Hey, if we'd have done always believe in destrucity, now you got an argument, you know, that would have been stupid. Uh, but yeah, it's just another, another shot at getting another, getting more money. And, uh, Again, people are going to say, well, you know, JR, all the guy want to do is make money. I agreed. And so does everybody else in the roster. Everybody else wants the same thing, but they, some of them are decent human beings and they understand that there's a process. They understand that there's more than just you at play. And he never got that. The, uh, the issue with Vince is, I guess, through their relationship over the years, Warrior had told Vince that he hadn't talked to his father since he was three years old. And I don't know, Vince just, I guess was like, this is more of the same. And we should mention that him doing an interview with prodigy, while that doesn't seem like a big deal, it's actually not allowed by the WWF policy because they have a contract with America online. And at the time prodigy is a chief competitor of theirs. So, uh, once again, he's sort of gotten out of the WWF lane. This is uh pretty remarkable the way the company handles this with the announcements in the building and then even going so far as to have Gorilla Monsoon address it on Raw. Do you think in hindsight that was handled the right way or were emotions running too high at the time? No, it's exactly it's handled like you would anybody else. Uh when you have a star that's in a, a main event level star that's been advertised, you know, con you know, you said little Conrad loved Ultimate Warrior. Sure. Okay. So there were, all, there were a lot of other little Conrads that were there to do the same thing. You, you were there, you, you would, you would have done if you were that age in that time. Sure. And, and he no showed your ass. You want to see the warrior? Well, he ain't going to be here. And that's how that was. He, he just, it, it was just, I don't know. It was just, uh, that's what we always did. You let people know when somebody was not going to be there 
and you try to put a, a adequate replacement in their slot and make the take away the little bit of the sting, uh, no pun intended, for him uh, not him him no showing. You know, I read uh, in preparation for this sh- this show today. You know, a warrior's dad deserted the family at when a warrior was twelve, twelve years old, and uh, and so here he is. You know, thirty years later or more, whatever. Uh, 20, 30 years later, and now he's grieving the death of his father. It sounds cold and callous for me to say that folks. I apologize if it offends anybody, but he had no relationship with his father. He was a, he was a biological father who deserted the family when warrior was 12 years old. So the grieving thing, albeit on the surface. Okay. I get it. Uh, it was at work in, in my view and everybody else's view that I talked to, and, you know, it's just. It was just a way he, he, to draw attention to himself. He didn't feel like going, you know, again, that goes back to commitment. He didn't make his booking and it was announced the way we always announce it. Uh, and, and, and to let people know, Hey, look, we know you paid money to see the ultimate warrior type thing. He's not here. And so, you know, you got to give people an excuse. You can't say, well, the guy's a dick folks. He really didn't want to come here today. He didn't want to be in Indianapolis, you know, and he, and he ain't, by the way, he ain't going to Detroit or Pittsburgh either. I know they're big shows. He ain't going to be there either. Uh, cause he's quote, he's grieving wink, wink. And he was a, he was a dick. He didn't want to, he was a Richard. He was one of the first Richards in the business. In my view, uh, in other words, he was a dick. My goodness. Well, listen, we know that, uh, this is the end of the WWF run here. Uh, the dick is gone as you would say. And. Uh, I guess he's sort of silent through 97. There's some ongoing litigation, but nothing really ever comes of it, uh, of any substance. And then in 1998, we start hearing that he's working out a deal with WCW. And, uh, I think a lot of Hulk Hogan haters would probably say, oh, I saw this coming because they think that Hulk wants to get his win back from WrestleMania six. When did, uh, you guys find out that. Hellwig was negotiating with WCW and does this sort of, I don't know. Is this a burr in Vince's saddle? Like, damn it. That's my guy. You can't have my creation. Or is, is he almost like, oh, thank God he's going over there. This will not be good. I told Vince during that era, we just got a big break because he'll do, he'll shit on them. Just like he shit on us. The leopard does not change his spots. So let them have the problem. And then Vince and Vince understood that you got a lot of dressing room lawyers, a lot of guys, a lot of wrestlers with influence there. I'm sure, you know, Eric's talked about that on his, uh, his show, sure. uh, that, that drops every Monday, 83 weeks. Thank you, uh, sir. and so let them have the problem, let them deal with this bullshit. Cause he's not going to be there long. Right. So let them have the, the pain and the, and the hassle and all that. Let them try to recreate what once was because they can't create how to protect warrior and they can't create how to market warrior better than, uh, Vince did, uh, during his, uh, WrestleMania six thing with Hogan, they can't do it. Uh, and he's already burned bridges. People understand, you know, he's, he's, he's unreliable. He's limited in his skills. Uh, so yeah, I don't think Vince had any animosity toward it whatsoever. First of all, the guy's got to go make a living somehow, some way, right. but if you're going to have a, a malcontent, well, let's make sure he's in the other guy's locker room, not ours. We should also mention that, um, when he shows up on nitro, it does a tremendous rating and it's a long promo. And I mean, a very long promo. 
And I think a lot of folks realized during the course of that segment, oh, this isn't going to be what we thought it would be. He winds up only participating in three matches. The first is war games at fall brawl. He's a member of team WCW competing against eight other wrestlers for a shot at Goldberg's world title at Halloween havoc. DDP would win the match by pinning Stevie Ray on the November 12th nitro. He and sting reformed their old tag team and they beat Hulk Hogan and Bret Hart by DQ. And then they finally have the rematch from WrestleMania six at Halloween havoc, 1998. And well, there's no Pat Patterson. So this does not go well. And famously during the match, Hulk is trying to throw a fireball at ultimate warrior with uh, some flash paper, but he can't get it to ignite. And, uh, it's just about one of the worst matches in history. Did you see this Halloween havoc match with warrior and Hogan? Shit. No, I got to make, I was, I, I was, re- I was reorganizing my sock drawer that night. <laughs> uh, no shit. Well, I want to watch that train wreck. Well, it comes to a close soon after for the ultimate warrior here. And he, uh, he winds up popping up again in the conversation in 2005, because the WWE releases a DVD focusing on the warrior, but it's not a puff piece. It's called the self-destruction of the ultimate warrior. And the DVD features highlights of some of his feuds and matches along with commentary from former WWE stars and current stars, almost all of which are insulting Warrior left the company in 96. This DVD comes out nine years later. Did Vince just have a big ax to grind or did he just think, Hey, I own the footage. Might as well do something with it. What's the thinking here? Well, the times were changing. Whereas if a talent in the older days, previous generation, uh, had issues and he left, then you write him out of your memory. He's gone. And Vince was that way up for a long time. Uh, but as the things changed and the, and the world opened up a little bit more, the demand for behind the scenes content uh, the documentaries, if you will, uh, increased. I think that's simply what it was. We thought that that DVD would sell it. It was a compelling story, uh, of, uh, of, of this guy, this guy that a lot of folks, the little Conrads of the world would never have known. So, uh, yeah, no, I think it was just a, simply a matter of monetizing the tape, tape library, uh, creating new money and, uh, letting guys, uh, express themselves. But the content was compelling enough in that era that, uh, the documentary style tell all, which now, uh, it's, it's, you know, look at the, what the great stuff that uh, WWE did with undertaker, his inside look, you know, the having taker talk and that's the same, it's the same concept, except it, there was no hatchet job because takers taker. And he was as far, uh, uh, far away from warrior as one could get as far as dedication and, and respect. So I think it's simply a matter of profitability, Conrad and creating some new money. Let's talk about, uh, the fact that warrior was originally asked to be a part of the DVD, but he refuses to work with the company. Uh, of course there's been animosity for a long time. And then of course, when it comes out, it's definitely a hit piece. Uh, it leads to the fact that in January of 06 warrior files a lawsuit against the company goes down in Arizona and, uh, on 2000, 2009, it's finally dismissed. So it takes, I don't know, more than three and a half years for the, to, this to sort of go away. And over the course of time, you know, the WWE hall of fame has become a pretty big deal. And there's often been talk and discussion about, Hey, we got to put the ultimate warrior in, but as long as they're sort of 
at odds, that doesn't seem very likely. And then all of a sudden in 2014, it happens. And a lot of people have credited triple H with being the one who made it happen. And I think he deserves the credit for repairing the Bruno relationship with the company as well. Uh, Warriors return is, is mostly brokered. I believe by the video game, 2k who wanted to make him a playable character in their video game. And triple H, I guess, takes care of pretty much everything else on the WWE's end. I know you weren't involved in the day to day at that point, but were you surprised to see the company mend fences with warrior and involve him in the hall of fame? Were the fences really mended Conrad, or was it just another way to get more spotlight on the hall of fame and create a, a bigger attraction? Uh, the fences are never mended. The fences are never going to be mended, but, uh, to, to, again, I use this term and I'm not degrading you, but all those little Conrads, all those, like yeah. talk about all the little stingers out there, all those things. Look, uh, it was a nostalgic thing, you know, to see him in the hall of fame was going to be a feel good moment for some, uh, he was a marquee name, no doubt about that. Uh, and that all stimulated uh, from his original push. There's that word again, kids, uh, the old push. And so he had great name identity. Uh, and that was, that was the deal there. So I was, was I totally surprised? No, if I had been, if he, they said, we're going to, he's going to have one more match, one more match. Uh, then I would have been shocked. But the fact that he was, uh, going to the hall of fame, I thought was somewhat benign and harmless. Even he can't screw this up. He makes it in the hall of fame. It's a big deal. Uh, it's pretty cool. The fans get to play him as a video game character as well. I gotta admit the little Conrad in me was very excited when I saw the commercial for the video game. And it's interesting that triple H is the guy who, you know, we, we saw TV, especially in this era, a lot as a, as a member of the authority or the leader of the authority, he would say you know, what's best for business and triple H is definitely doing what's best for business because for years prior to this, he'd always been very outspoken about the warrior and not always the biggest fan, but it happens, uh, April 5th, 2014 warrior goes into the hall of fame and he walks onto the stage with his two daughters. What'd you think of his speech that he gave at the uh, hall of fame? I love the fact that his daughters are with him. I thought that was a proud moment for the little girls, uh, something they'll never, they'll never forget. So there's a video of it, obviously that they can watch. And uh, remember their dad. I think that was very sweet. Thought it was a good deal. Uh, I the, maybe the most impressive thing that I could saw Warrior do in his entire career was publicly show his love for his children. Yeah, I was impressed with that. I was impressed as hell. Uh, and uh, so I give, give the devil his due in that respect. Uh, but it, he he just he was just a great attraction for that that Hall of Fame. You know, we can say this about almost any hall of fame speech, including mine might've been a little long, but it was very emotional. And, uh, the thing that I remember, as I said about the two little girls, the love a father shows their children on this very special moment, somewhat of a closure, maybe, and uh, maybe the healing can start now. Maybe the guy will see the light change and be more, uh, you know, open-minded, uh, and not, uh, uh, you know, not so politically abrasive at times of things he said about different groups of people. Uh, but I, here's what I remember. And this is going to sound freaking crazy. He was sweating like a, he was going to the electric chair. Yeah. And I, something, I said, man, I told Jan, I said, something's not quite right here. Right. 
So, uh, but I, I was impressed by the presentation overall and, and, and the little girls being there with their dad was a great moment for me as a father. It was a special moment and I'm glad he got to go in. I was actually at that hall of fame. One of my best wrestling buddies, uh, the ultimate warrior is the reason he's a wrestling fan. So it was a big deal for all the little Clint's and all the little Conrad's out there. And the next day he appears at WrestleMania 30 with all the other hall of fame inductees. And I think this is the day when, uh, he bumps into Hulk Hogan and they've both been very outspoken against each other, especially warrior. I mean, he would write rants on his website and cut all kinds of crazy videos, just absolutely destroying Hulk Hogan and, um, Hulk's riding around back in a golf cart, which a lot of folks do in those big domes and Hulk sees him, asks the driver to stop. They go over and talk and unbelievably the WWE cameras catch this on video and Hulk said after the fact, he didn't realize he was being recorded and ta-da, it made it. And there's also a famous picture from this weekend of uh, Vince McMahon and, and ultimate warrior hugging. And it was just, uh, it was cool to see, especially now that we know the end of the story and how sad it's going to be that all the folks that he had sort of rallied and railed against and, and, and they had done it to him. It feels like this weekend we're sort of letting bygones be bygones. And, and that's, that's a cool story. Very cathartic for all involved that were closest to, uh, Jim Helwig. Uh, there weren't many. But, uh, Vince and Hogan, certainly the most prominent of that group. I, I don't know Hulk well enough to know what it meant to him. I'm assuming that it meant, uh, you know, a, some degree of closure, but I do know Vince McMahon as well as anybody. And I know that uh, Vince is very happy that it, they finally seem to be at a happy place that all this turmoil and controversy and, and bad communication and mistrust and all these things. We're now going to be a thing of the past and only a memory. And I think Vince felt very relieved about that, that, you know, man takes a bad rap on a lot of things. He has no feeling. He has no soul, which is total bullshit. He's a human being. Of course, he's got feelings and of course he's got soul. So I think it was a very important event. And I was happy to see that Vince seemed to be relieved that we, we seem to be, we arrived at our destination where healing can begin. And unfortunately that was very short lived. The next night on raw warrior comes to the ring and speaks and cuts a promo. It's uh, 18 years after his most recent WWF television appearance. While he's talking, he says every man's heart one day beats its final beat. His lungs breathe its final breath. And if that man did in his life makes the blood pulse through the bodies of others, if it makes them believe deeper in something larger than life, then his essence, his spirit will be immortalized by the storytellers, by the loyalty by the memory of those who honor him and making the running man did live forever. And the next day, April 8th, 550, he's walking to his car outside of a hotel in Scottsdale, Arizona. He clutches his chest and collapse He's rushed to the hospital. And he is pronounced dead at the age of 54. It's revealed after the fact, of course, that he passed away from a heart attack. This is, uh, I don't know, man such a story and so incredibly sad that he carried around all of this, uh, I don't know, hate in his, in his life for so long. And then finally has a chance to sort of purge it all. And as you said, it was very cathartic and wrestling fans are happy to have him in the hall of fame and on their TV program. And the next day he's gone. I, I don't, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's like a movie. It was, 
it was shocking Conrad. Yeah. And, and, and the, my image, my best image, my best thoughts of the ultimate warrior, uh, AKA Jim Helwig will always be the man going into the hall of fame with little girls in hand, making them feel so proud of their dad. That's what I will always remember prominently, most prominently about this guy. Not that he was hard to do business with, not that he was challenging to talk with or to understand or to communicate with, not none of that. You know, I, I would express myself in this show, honestly, openly, you know, uh, he wasn't one of my favorite guys, but I, I have, I'm a human being as well. I felt so distraught about, uh, his death because I bought into the same thing. I thought like Vince, that maybe we're now at arrived at our healing place where the healing can start. And maybe there's things that he can do from a, you know, if you can control his, his dialogue, uh, and his political views that sometimes were very abrasive that he could, he could, he could help us somewhere down there in PR wise, you know, you can imagine how he would have done it, uh, at an access, uh, you know, WrestleMania access, things like that, uh, because his, of his name and and his fact that he was a famous guy, but I was very, very heartbroken when I heard, I didn't really want to believe it. Uh, but you know, obviously it was true and, uh, but it was a shock and it was sad. It was sad, man. It's sad when children lose their father. It's sad when a wife loses her husband. And I can identify more with that now at my stage of life after losing Jan, I can get it. I get it better. Uh, so, uh, I feel for them. I still have feel for them quite frankly. Uh, but I know his wife is still, uh, somewhat affiliated with WWE and, you know, I'm sure Vince is taking care of them and uh, which is good, uh, and is on, on, and honorable. So, you know, I, I, I was sad to hear about the whole thing and I was just shocked. How could this be? I mean, you could not write a movie script that ended this way. Cause it would be so unbelievable. You're telling me this guy finally makes his way back home after this long journey. He walks into a place where he hadn't been in this, this cathedral of fans and he's celebrated. He's got a spark in his eye. He's got a big smile on his face. The kids are happy. People are crying. It's a wonderful thing. And then boom, hours later, he's dead. It just was just heartbreaking. And I, I'll always feel that way about him and because I try to look for the good in everybody. Sure. And, and because he wasn't a great pro wrestler, he was a great attraction. He was a star, uh, but he was a father and he was a husband and that counts a whole hell of a lot more in our lives how we treat our family and how we interact with our families, Conrad, in my opinion, than how good a match we had. We have four star matches. Did Meltzer give us five stars, four stars, a dud? What do we get? It's stuff's a lot more important than that. So, and all the negativity that I've probably said here on the show, more than I've said on any show we've done, I'm only being honest folks, my personal experiences with this guy, but at the end of the end of the run, he kind of made himself whole with me. In the fact that I saw a different side of him that made me proud of the father that he was. We should mention that WWE paid tribute to him on the April 14th raw with a 10 bell salute and a video, the network added a lineup dubbed warrior week in his memory, including a four part special. That was a wrestling themed episode of the Goldbergs, which aired on May 6th. Also dedicated to his memory. And in the 2015 film, the Flintstones and WWE. 
Uh, we had, uh, that entire film dedicated to his memory. And in recent years, the hall of fame inductions have included, uh, the warrior award, which is of course named after him and presented by his widow, Dana. What do you think ultimately now that it's all said and done is going to be warriors legacy in professional wrestling? One of the most controversial, uh, talents to ever become a star, uh, a man that was very independent and sometimes, uh, misguided. Uh, but he, he got over in spite of his lack of in-ring skills, uh, and his image that he projected his charisma that he had naturally organically, uh, well, was, was something I'll never forget. But, uh, again, because of the last 48 hours of his life, I changed my attitude, uh, about, you know, was he still a pain in the ass along the journey? Yeah, sure was. He wasn't the only guy that's a pain in the ass. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, I, I found newfound respect for him because, again, the most important role we got ain't the top baby face. It's not closing the show. It's not how many stars your match gets. It's what kind of human being are you to the most important people in your life. And no matter what, I think we could most all of us can agree that the most important people in our lives are our family. And I saw a family man that I didn't know existed. So that's how I'm going to remember him. But he'll never be forgotten. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's, his footprints in, in, indelible. It's there and, and it'll always be there. And, and we'll all have different opinions of him. So, uh, but, but I, I have a different view of him at the end of his journey than I did, uh, prior to that, uh, that weekend in the Hall of Fame. Well, I'm glad we got to cover him. Uh, I know that he's uh, been a pretty controversial figure, but I think there's a lot of people listening to this who would cite that as a kid, he was one of their absolute favorite wrestlers. And I'm in that list as well. Uh, so we did our best to cover the ultimate warrior this week. Next week, we'll be back with King of the ring 2000, which went down on June 25th, 2000 at the fleet center in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, so we've got a little bit of an anniversary show. The main event of that, uh, show is, uh, the rock and the brothers of destruction, which is Kane, the undertaker taking on the McMahon Helmsley faction, which is Vince Shane and triple H with Stephanie on the outside. The idea here is triple H is going to lose the title to whoever scores the pin or submission. So a little bit of an interesting twist to put the world mm -hmm. title on the line on a six man. We've also got Rikishi and Kurt angle battling out to determine who will become the king of the ring. DX working with the Dudley boys and a handicap tables, dumpster match. Uh, Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe are going to be involved in a hardcore evening gown match. <laughs> there is so much fun silliness on this, uh, but there's also a fatal four-way elimination match for the tag titles with edge and Christian working with two cool, the Hardy boys and TNA a lot on the card for us to discuss <laughs> next week. King of the ring, 2000. Check it out. It's going to be early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com or just tune in next Thursday right here on grill and JR on Westwood one. And in the meantime, to hold you over, as I said, we've got tons of bonus content on adfreeshows.com, including on the road again with Tony Schiavone and Jim Ross, hop in the car with these guys, head up and down the highway and sit under the learning tree or, uh, sit by the pool and read your brand new book from jrsbbq.com under the black hat continues to be a hot seller, Jim. Yeah, we're very blessed, Conrad. You know, I, I wrote this book. I'll get through this because I've got tears in my eyes right now thinking about her. Uh, this is, this was a, my last public hug to my late wife. 
And, you know, we've got a lot. Here's the, here's the beautiful part about this. She deserves it so much. We have bona fide interest in our, in under the black hat by some major, uh, uh, television people, movie people, motion picture studios. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have no idea where it's going to go. It may not go anywhere, folks. I don't get my hopes up too high. I'm not being cynical, but those things are, is a huge, long, out, uh, drawn out process. But the book has been uh, critically acclaimed. It was the number. It's been the number one selling sports biography uh, on Amazon for uh, off and on since it was released. And golly, it's only it only got released in March. So, uh, but we still got that offer uh, at uh, jrsbbq.com, where I'll personalize your autograph. Great, great gifts. I know a lot of people got them for Father's Day, uh, and of course, any gift you want. But we're going to keep that offer up. I'm not going to do a, that offer. Is not going to be dated. If you want a signed copy of version of, of, of the first edition hardcover, there's where to go. And while you're there, look at that good sauce we got and things of that nature. It's grilling season and we love doing that. And, you know, sometimes I even get out there and we get out there today, do a little grilling, some Omaha steaks. Well, we're excited to, uh, to have you here and sharing your story every week. If you want a little more, you got to check out under the black hat. It's not only available. Uh, from his website at jrsbbq.com, but you can get it anywhere you enjoy books. But if you want an autograph, the only place to get it, and he'll personalize it for you is jrsbbq.com. Don't forget. There's also the book on tape. If you just prefer to listen, uh, we're going to keep cr- cranking out this content for you every week here on grill and JR for free. But if you want a little extra bonus content, check out the book, man, under the black hat. I can't recommend it enough. Almost everyone I know who's read it says that. If it's not their very favorite book, it's certainly top three. It's in the conversation with Brent Hart's book and Mick Foley's first one. And that's rare air, especially in an era where every wrestler has a book. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the best ones of all time. You don't want to miss it. Get it autographed. And it's a really, really cool gift for the graduate in your life, for the dad in your life, uh, for the wrestling fan in your life. It's jrsbbq.com. And I got to tell you in my private group chat with my friends, I put over your sauce in a big way because for years and years I have been. Uh, a stalwart for Gibson's barbecue sauce. And I know that what we're famous for in Alabama is white sauce. That's not really my jam. I like their championship red, but I've been using yours almost exclusively this summer and I'm really into it. But what I'm a little late on is the mustard, the main event mustard, my buddies absolutely devour. I I think it might be your unsung hero of all your sauces. I think it's going to get over. (laughs) <laughs> I think it already and, has. And I'll, and I'll give it, if it does, we'll give it a nice push. Hey, look, I, 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 I tried to eat cleaner and I stopped eating mayo and I still like it. I love it. Uh, and so I, I wanted to get something in the mustard world that, that, uh, was a little different. So this mustard is made with, uh, it's honey mustard and it's made with the, uh, has jalapeno mash in it, meaning it's not sizzling hot, but it's spicy as you know, but man, I, there's a million ways to use it. I use it on grill salmon on, on the, on my, on, out of my grill. Uh, it's great on any sandwich. It's great on any hot dogs, hamburgers, wherever deviled eggs. It's just wherever you use mustard, it's really good. And I appreciate you bringing that up because it's one of my favorite product product products that we make. And you know, uh, the other thing, the other sleeper is that chipotle ketchup. Whereas if you took a little bit of a little ramekin, little container and you do about 10 or 15 seconds in your microwave, no more than that. Uh, it warms it up. And it makes a hell of a steak sauce. So, uh, we're doing good with it. We're getting a lot of repeat business. We're selling several cases of our JR's original, which was my mother's original idea. 
my mother's original concept that she and Jan, uh, helped per- perfect. And, uh, that's my, it's got my heart wrapped around it. So I appreciate you saying that Conrad, jrsbbq.com. And we look, we pride ourselves in customer service. If we get your order one day, it's going to be a shift within 48 hours. So we try to take care of our people and, uh, cause they take care of us. I should mention you've got like a full-time crew working on this behind the scenes. So, uh, don't assume when JR says, Oh, I'm headed to Jacksonville for a month that that means you're not going to get your sauce. Your sauce is getting shipped the same day or the next day. Yep. Uh, he's got it down pat over at jrsbbq.com. You don't want to miss it. Check it out just in time for summer. And don't forget as you're lounging around the pool, uh, the best book you can possibly read under the black hat. And, uh, we'll be back next week, man. King of the ring 2000 right here on grilling JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross heavy on the mister. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.